Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. My next guest on the program is a remarkable man. He's in his early 60s and he's just completed the world's toughest survival and endurance race. It is known as the Yukon 1000. It is a kayaking race down the Yukon River in the United States in some pretty extreme conditions under some pretty extreme rules. When he's not doing this, he's also the event director for an endurance race in this country called The Revenant. We're in the five-year race history. Only five athletes have finished. His name is Scott Worthington. He joins us. Afternoon to you, Scotty. Welcome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the Yukon 1000. When did you first hear about it and what is it all about? Um, first heard about it a couple of years ago, actually, um, through a mate of mine who's an adventure racer him and I met during God's Zone and so forth. So something he mentioned to me and obviously um, COVID meant that even though we got accepted um, to be uh, a competitor, uh, prior to COVID, uh, the event didn't run until this year. Um, so that's how I got to know about it. And um, as I say, after a bit of a two or three years of training and getting up and getting down and getting up and getting down, we finally got to, to hit the start line this year. What does it involve? Uh, it's a pretty simple race. Um, it uh, goes from point A to point B from Whitehorse in Canada to and finishes just a little bit. Um, north of Fairbanks in Alaska um, and is a unsupported 1,000-mile paddle. Uh, you can't do it as a solo. You've got to do it as a, a team of two um, uh, because of the nature of the race from a safety aspect. Um, and, yeah, you pack your gear. There's a mandatory gear list. And other than that, um, pretty much you're on your own and away you go. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the logistics of it all, um, what, what sort of um, kayaks are we talking about and how many different classes of boat? Okay, so there's, um, there's three classes of, of boat, um, with one of them um, only being accepted, in the, I think of the, maybe this is the second year. So there is your traditional um, Canadian um, canoe, which is the, the sort of favoured transport. Um, then they, there's the kayak, which is generally going to be a sea kayak because you need something that's with enough room in it to, to take your gear. And then they do allow a um, stand-up paddleboard uh, section, um, and they've got to travel as pairs, so um, again, to keep the team concept. So they're the three, they're the three classes of, of boat that's allowed in the race. Okay, and, and what's the total distance, and was there a certain point throughout the race that you had to get to before being pulled out? Yep, yep. Uh, so the distance is 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometres, uh, from Whitehorse to basically the um, Dalton Highway Bridge, which is... Um, the bridge that brings the Alaskan pipeline across. Um, and um, there is only one uh, cut-off area, and that's at Dawson City, which is just under halfway. Um, and the only reason that there's really a cut-off 
at that point is because past Dawson City, there's nowhere to pull you out. There, there is nobody there. Um, and apparently we were told, and we, it sort of um, came home to us when we got up there, that if you get yourself into trouble um, and you could... Um, you know, communicate and get yourself a helicopter in. It'd be about two and a half days before any of them arrived because there aren't any helicopters up there. Basically, they just use small seaplanes and um, they can land on lakes and that, but not on a moving river. So pretty much halfway Dawson, um, simply because there is a road in there and they can extract you if you don't want to go on or something happens. But other than that... Uh, you're on your own. Okay, so now you're allowed to, what I understand, paddle up to 18 hours a day. You had to have a compulsory six-hour rest. How many kilometres would you cover in a day, or what were you hoping to cover in a day? Yeah, so that was basically, yeah, you're right, there's a, there's only 18 hours that you can paddle, and you've got to be off at six hours, so that's a bit of a safety thing. Um, so our game plan was pretty simple. It was to go hell for leather, um, the first couple of days while we were still fresh and, and sleep deprivation hadn't kicked in. Um, and uh, the first day, you've got a 50-mile lake to, to go across, um, which is slow going, so you've got to factor that in. So we ended up averaging just over 200 kilometres a day. Um, our biggest day was 290 kilometres. Um, and we banked most of that in the first couple of days. In other words, we thought if we could get on schedule, um, then in the latter part of the race, when sleep was really kicking in as being an issue, um, we'd hopefully give ourselves a little bit of leeway, and we did. On our last day, we only had, we only had 170k to do, which was nice after sort of doing 220 mm. a day. So. Now, I like when you say only paddling 170 kilometres in a day. Yes, you might have the current behind you, but you still got to move the arms. Now, you did this with a, a young man by the name of Ben Loft. Um, in terms of the camaraderie, um, the teamwork required, uh, what were some of the challenges there? I imagine, you know, fatigue, sleep deprivation kicking in. Did you have strategies for dealing with maybe any tension that might have cropped up or any um, disagreements? Yeah, I, I I think that, um, you know, you certainly do have to have strategies. But I think the most important thing, and it's certainly what Ben and I um, did, um, you know, to know your paddling partner in a race like that, um, inside out is really important. And that doesn't happen overnight. So our biggest preparation was the fact that we've known each other for, for, for quite a while, uh, since pretty much uh, 2018 in the God's Own Fjordland year. And then obviously, in some ways, COVID helped because um, the fact that we didn't get to race for a couple of years meant that we just kept going into the bush and going down to Fjordland and doing all sorts of um, things together. So in the end, we knew each other backwards. Um, fatigue, um, all the little triggers about when someone was going to get a little bit pissed off or you know, a little, little, little bit anxious. Um, you knew everybody's little triggers. And so you know, I think the key thing is um, you train for that months, months and months out from a race like that. Otherwise, if you don't, it doesn't matter what procedures you'll put in place. If you don't really know that person, chances are those procedures won't really be that effective. Now, what were some of the dangers? I mean, tell us, we are, I mean, you've got to do a high level of risk analysis here. Um, what, what were firstly some of the dangers just with the river and the boat itself and then some of the dangers maybe perhaps with, say, some of the wildlife? Okay, so, um, you know, obviously, the, the, like any river, um, 
dangers and risks change from, from season to season, depending on how, how high or low that water level is. And some rivers, obviously, that danger is accentuated sometimes when it's low rather than high or vice versa. For the Yukon, it tends to be when the river is high. And as it turned out, this was historically, they'd never had as much ice melt and therefore the, the river, they'd never seen the height of the river before in recorded history, basically. Now, what that meant was that finding places to pull off it for that six hours was very, very difficult. And then when we got to an area called the Flats, which is a sort of story all of its own, that area became like a like a swamp in the sense of the really all the all the um, normal indicators for where you were at any given time were underwater. Um, so um, you know the, the height of the river created. Um, a lot of interesting things in terms of getting off the river at night, but also what was floating down the river. Um, so huge, huge log jams. Um, like, you, you know, you can imagine them, but you can't really until you actually see the size of this river and, and its catchment area over that many miles, and therefore how many trees can be caught up in a log jam. And when you're paddling towards one of those, which is, you know, going not a dissimilar speed to you, you're going a bit quicker than the flow. Um, you know, thinking about getting past it sounds easy, but if you go past and half that log jam decides to disintegrate in front of you and you get your boat caught amongst a whole bunch of floating, literally, trees, um, you can go under the water and be dead pretty quickly. So, you know, those those are the sort of type of on-river things. Um, the electrical storms created massive, massive wildfires. We were in wildfires for about two and a half days uh, with smoke, um, embers. Um, so there's, you know, there's that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, you've got your wildlife, um, bears and, and so forth. So you've got your sleeping protocols and, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of things to um, take into account when you're doing your risk mm. analysis. I mean, how realistic are the bear attacks? Is it just uh, is it just a bit of a scare tactic? I mean, how, uh, yeah, what is the reality of that? How Look, many bears did you see, and and what are some of the strategies you put in place? Uh, well, the re- I mean, the reality is like a lot of like a lot of wildlife. Um, it, it's sort of luck of the draw. So you know, we came down and finished the race and said to the race director, "Well, you know." We we, hadn't, we didn't have any problems in terms of the wildlife. Saw some, but you know, just literally no issues. Uh, and yet other teams, you know, we had a moose running through somebody's tent and taking that out because they scared it. Um, you had people letting um, bear spray off in their in their uh, tents <laughs> instead of at the bear because they were obviously feeling a bit anxious when it, when a bear was um, outside their sleeping quarters. Um, so look, it, you know, the risk is real. Um, it's just luck of the draw, and we were lucky that we didn't really have any close encounters from that point of view. Um, but your strategies are pretty simple. Um, these are big predators; they um, work on scent, um, and so you're just doing things like you know you have a completely separate uh, set of clothes for your sleeping that you only sleep in. So you know what you paddle in during the day, what you you might you know eat at night. All of, that, all of that clothing has scent because you've been eating. So you put that with your boat, you, you move your tent somewhere else, and you have a completely separate set of sleeping clothes so that if they do come into your camp, they're going to go and ravage through your boat, hopefully, and your food, and not you. Mm. Um, so, you know, beer canisters, 
Um, so look, like a lot of things, it's just um, putting a plan in place and religiously sticking to it. 15 minutes after two, you're listening to SENZ. My guest on the programme is Scott Worthington. He's just come back from completing the world's toughest survival endurance race known as the Yukon 1000. Uh, Scott, paddling over 200 kilometres a day, fueling the body important, um, clearly having to self-cater. What sort of food did you take? How did you keep the calories up? And um, how did dinner and breakfast and lunch look? Um, well, yeah, um, I think you know, you know me well enough, Mark, that uh, I'm not a calorie counter. I just eat on basically what I think I need and how I feel. So we packed, um, mandatory was to pack 10 days worth of, um, of food because that was sort of a theoretical cutoff. Um, so our food consisted pretty much of um, dehydrated meals for, for the morning and, and, and evening. Um, and then during the day, just, you know, snacks, depending on your own personal taste. So for me, that was, you know, lots of bags of nuts and trail mix and, and, and stuff like that. And, and a few good old treats along the way, a few, few um, you know, wine gums and jet planes. Mm. So, um, you know, just um, be, being smart, um, the, the water... Is a bit of an issue on the river. You'd think it would be fresh. It is fresh, but from about Dawson City, it's not really drinkable because it's full of silt. So again, you're separating out and filtering your water at night. Um, so yeah, you, you, your mind's got to be on that fuel all the time. But we kept it, you know, really simple um, and um, and pretty much either ate in the boat uh, on the move or basically would prepare. In the morning, what we needed for breakfast, and you know, as soon as you're on the water, um, you're at least on the boat moving. So, um, yeah, food's just part of the overall mm. plan. And to give the people an idea of the size of the landscape and the geography, you encountered forest fires over there that you paddled through for basically two days consecutively. Such was the scale of them. Yep, yep, yeah, we, um, in fact, a bit longer than that. Um, so we say we were averaging, two, say, 220 a day, and I think we paddled literally through the thick of them. Uh, there were, you know, at the end, they, they tailed off a bit, but where it was really, really heavy and thick smoke, we went for about two and a half days. So what's that, sort of uh, four, ne- 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 nearly, you know, 550-odd kilometres of continuous fires. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it makes it, uh, interesting. Um, but you know, is, is, I suppose an example of how extreme the weather, I mean, they were set off by the, uh, electrical storms. We got caught in one of those the night before we hit the wildfires and that's obviously what triggered them. And yeah, just massive, massive, I've never heard thunder like it, to be honest, uh, massive, massive storms that came through, wind did get up and. Um, lightning and so forth and so you're trying to make those decisions of do you carry on and mm. when you see lightning strike almost beside you uh, it makes your decision making pretty quick, let's get out of here and get mm. off the water um, so yeah look those sort of things um, uh, are, are, everything's big up there and I don't think I certainly didn't until you get there, you can look at it on a map and get an idea in your mind of how big the river is but man until you get there you have no idea. Um, parts of it or good stretches, you thought you were on a lake, not not a river. Um, they were. It's just massive. Uh, Scott, mosquitoes. I understand another big issue, and not just any mosquito. These things, the size of a horse. 
Yeah, mosquitoes are a problem, and yeah, they're the side of a sparrow, basically. Um, they're huge, and they are vicious, and they will go straight through. I can testify they will go through two layers of a merino top without any problem at all and bite you. Um, and just when you start to, once you cross the um, the border from uh, Canada into Alaska and the mosquitoes started to get a little bit thinner on the ground uh, into the horse flies, um, and these flies are incredible things, and they just get in the bottom of your boat and you think you've, you know, you've got rid of them and all of a sudden they're biting you in the legs and so forth underneath your kayak skirt. So... Yeah, a lot of the aerial stuff um, is it's not so bad when you're on the water, but at night when you're setting up camp, um, you just sprint. You literally sprint from the boat to getting your tent up. You don't stop moving until you can get in, mm-hmm. and then you kill whatever you can that's, that's managed to enter the tent um, and uh, hunker down and, and close your, much of your flesh off so you don't get bitten to death. Just finally, Scott, someone just want just somebody texting in, just wanting to know um, what was the first thing that you ate properly once you arrived on terra firma. Um, the first thing that I ate. Well, what, did, what, what did you was, crave? What did what you determined to get? Uh, licorice. Brilliant, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> I love black licorice, and so it was like, get me some black licorice. That will do me. In other words, I suppose a bit of a sugar rush, but. Um, yeah, and then we went into town in Fairbanks and uh, and, and got ourselves a decent burger. Um, so that was um, that was good. Well, Scott Worthington, lovely having you on the program. Congratulations on finishing it, mate, and congratulations on continuing that sort of pioneering spirit, which is very much part of the New Zealand way. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. There you go. Scott Worthington, having just completed the toughest endurance race in the world called the Yukon 1000. There were a number of other New Zealand teams in it, but it's not something for the faint-hearted. You need to train incredibly hard. You've got to have a huge level of risk management. You've got to be an experienced multi-sporter, um, and you do have to truly understand the risks involved. This is not a walk in the park. Decision-making and the wrong decisions have some serious consequences. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it, like um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.